No one can serve two masters, for he must either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink, nor about your body what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They sow not, and reap not, and gather not into barns, and your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more than they? But who among you can add one foot to his growth, even though he worries about it? And why do you worry about clothing? Look at the lilies in the field, how they grow. They do not work, do not spin. But I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory was so clothed as one of them. If then God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the stove, would he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore you should not worry and say, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? The pagans seek all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Then all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So, today we are taking a look at and discussing the lily in the field and the bird of the air, three devotional discourses by Soren Kierkegaard. Today our focus will be on the first of those three discourses, the topic of which is silence. Um, these three discourses were initially published in May of 1849. Um, and he starts off, they're all focused on um, Matthew 6, verses 24 to 34. Um, and I appreciate the uh, irony of having an inaugural podcast episode, um, the theme of which is silence. But on that topic, uh, I'll be monologuing for a bit today with some passages from this essay. Now. Where Kierkegaard begins is he talks about the poet. And when he's talking about the poet, he's sort of talking about the someone with an aesthetic sensibility. Um, so the way that he the way that the poet responds to this passage um, is with a sort of sorrow, frustration, anger, because the poet acknowledges, yes, I wish I could be like the bird or the lily. I wish I could be so free of care. But alas, and recognizes that, um, recognizes that what is being said here is an impossible beauty and is a kind of cruelty. It's as though we're being taunted with this idea of we should be like the bird or the lily, and yet it's, it remains out of our reach, remains impossible for us because we are human, because we are so burdened by human cares. Um, 
And so to this view, Kierkegaard's response is to point specifically, he uses this word a lot, earnest. So he's talking about the earnestness of the gospel. I'm not sure the, uh, the translation um, for that word, but, but in, in the version I'm reading, it's, it's written as earnest. So he says that the gospel is so earnest that it, quote, dares to order that he shall be like the bird. And this, I think, is a really simple and wonderful sort of revelation, right? That, I mean, I think I have some of this sensibility that he ascribes to the poet, right? Where I think, oh, would that I could be like that. Um, and, and yet it seems like something that remains out of reach. Um, unable to be grasped and so <laughs> how simple then to say it's not a matter of whether you can or cannot you shall it's an order it's a command um, and he talks too about being childlike and you know of course this is something else that that is a theme with the poet is that the poet wishes that they could return to childhood and to those feelings of, of wonder and innocence that sort of we think of as characterizing childhood or youth. Um, but Kierkegaard is saying we should be like the child who does not dare to say, when given a command, does not dare to say, I cannot. And what he says is, Quote, not to be able is impossible if one does not dare something else. So he makes this issue of being like the bird or the lily. Um, he makes it into something as simple as a duty and in his view, this sort of bypasses the hand-wringing of the poet, right? Um, because if we do not dare do something else other than what God wills, then only God's, God's will becomes the, the only thing that is possible. And this is something that he kind of will explore more throughout the discourses, particularly in the... Um, the second one on obedience. So this is kind of how he introduces the bird and the lily. Um, and so this initial portion is focused on silence. And before we really get into why silence, what that silence means, um, I want to start with a little anecdote. I first read this essay about a month ago. I had taken a trip um, to the heart of the Appalachian Mountains, to a place that I love very dearly. Um, and I was camped out for a week or so, spending some time in the mountains, doing some hikes, and being in that place, which I've been to many times before, I, I sort of try to be thoughtful about why it is that it's so meaningful to me. 
why I feel drawn back to this place and and why especially when I'm when I'm there in the mountains I have this feeling of being at home which it's not where I'm from it's not what you could call my home in the sense that we typically think of home but there's a sort of nostalgia a sort of a sort of returning um, that makes it feel like home and so I was here and I was I was trying to sort of figure it out and before I read this essay on one of my walks I, I had the thought which I've had similar thoughts before that what feels so profound about this landscape is its silence and especially its silence held up next to its sort of grandiosity of appearance so to be standing on a mountaintop and to hear nothing or to hear almost nothing right or to hear just the wind through the trees some bird song or depending on you know which side of the ridge you're on to hear the roaring of a creek um, you have these sounds that are that fit in with what we'll come to understand as Kierkegaard's conception of silence but you have these sounds that are that are so understated um, in comparison to the just immense beauty that you see in this place and and the extraordinary um, diversity and and quantity even of life just how much is going on especially in the springtime everything's coming into bloom and it just seems so rich and so vibrant and yet it has this quiet and I think um, the silence it feels the way I conceive of it is to be in this landscape feels like being held and I don't know how much I can explicate as far as sort of like what that feeling of heldness is to me but maybe it makes sense um, and I think that feeling is very much like faith as I experience it which one of the sort of images that I think about when I think about faith and how I exist within faith is it feels as though you've I feel as though I've leapt from a high place and there's this expectation of falling there's this expectation of eventually reaching a bottom eventually hitting the ground and I'm borrowing a little bit from Tolstoy here but I think for me what is what what then I experience which is so wonderful is that gradually and sort of imperceptibly I come to realize that I'm not falling that there is nowhere that I'm headed to and that I'm simply held it's this feeling of floating of sort of weightlessness 
of invisible um, support. And so I think being in that particular landscape has that same feeling of just being held. And it has almost this um, parental quality to it. Um, and I think this will also tie in this, this idea of returning, of returning to childhood, um, will tie in with Kierkegaard's understanding of becoming silent as sort of an undoing, as a returnal, um, a way of, of moving backwards towards the beginning. Um, so I was in this place and on one of the days that I was there, I read this essay and it resonated a great deal with some of the feelings and thoughts that I was having. So to get into how he understands and discusses silence, um, he first says that speech is what distinguishes us as humans, but quote, because the human being is able to speak, the ability to be silent is an art. So we're distinguished by our capacity for speech and communication, um, but then to have this distinction and to, I don't know if I wanna say relinquish it, but to, to not make full use of it is, he described it as a great art. And it's sort of like um, elsewhere, he's talked about free will and, and um, God's omnipotence being the greatest om omnipotence because within it, he grants us freedom. Um, and so he's, I think, following a similar sort of logic here. Um, and he specifically goes to Matthew 6.33, which we read, Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. How do we go about doing that? Well, by becoming nothing before God. By learning to be silent, we can do that. We can become nothing or less than nothing before God. Um, and so this is where he mentions, um, the way he says it is, quote, one devoutly comes backward to the beginning. So if we think about our lives and the sort of tangled web of things that we deal with each day, and, and the noise that we are so sort of accustomed to living within, we're thinking here about letting go, of stepping backwards, of, of moving, of detaching ourselves a little bit from all of these concerns and from the movements of our lives and allowing ourselves space and space and silence. And this has that feeling of like when I was in the mountains, it feels like I'm seeing landscapes that almost exist. They're like vision before vision. 
like when you think about the kinds of uh i don't know like mandala type shapes that that are associated with psychedelic trips um they're they're you're seeing something but it's almost like uh you're seeing something that is wired into the very structure of your perception and i think these landscapes for me have this feeling of essentiality maybe that they they are obviously their existence precedes my own but i feel that in a more than simply tangible way um in more in a sort of profound and, and deep and spiritual way anyhow um, I think in this silence we're, we're getting a similar thing where we're able to return to a space that is prior to what we have come to know and assume about our lives and the course that they take. Um, he says, God is infinite wisdom. What the human being knows is idle chatter. Therefore, they can hardly converse. And he says, only in much fear and trembling is a human being able to speak with God. Okay, so compared to God's infinite wisdom, our lives and our knowledge are so small, are so trite, that... I wouldn't say there is no mutual understanding, but when he says that we do not converse or that we can only speak with fear and trembling, what he then moves towards is that to speak with God in fear and trembling is to become silent. That fear and trembling itself stifles speech until we are unable to be other than silent. And he says, to pray is not only to be silent, but is to listen. So we're going even further than silence. Um, and he uses an example of someone who has a great deal of concerns that they bring to God in prayer. And they're very um, overly verbal, let's say, um, ensuring that they, they have explained everything that needs to be explained to God. And there's a kind of, <laughs> there's a kind of very funny and almost like, pitiable arrogance about this idea, right? That we, we need to be explaining ourselves um, before God as though we have access to knowledge that he does not. Um, so he, in this example, talks about someone who is very sort of fervent about their prayer and is very verbose and gradually as they become more devoted, as they develop and grow 
in their prayer life they use fewer and fewer words until they fall completely silent and then once you are in that silence you not only are not speaking but you become one who listens um, so prayer it's a kind of uh, reversal of I think one of the ways in which we frequently think of prayer um, it's it's a state that we enter into as he describes it um, in which we allow ourselves to simply be in the presence of God and to hear uh, the voice of God um, so a point here that is worth I don't know if it can be clarified or how much it can be clarified but that is worth at least exploring and understanding is what does he actually mean by silence because we could take it literally we could take it figuratively in what sort of context is he talking about is he just talking about what our prayers should look like is he talking about our everyday lives what what is silence um and so he uses a lot of sort of poetic he takes a lot of poetic license with his description and explanation what he gives of it of what silence is um and so if you think about nature, if you think about a landscape and you hear birdsong and you hear the wind and you hear the creeks and all of those things, he describes those as having a uniformity. And that uniformity is still silence, even though it's not the absence of sound, it is a kind of silence. Um, and I think, you know, my understanding is sort of that, that something like birdsong is simply a piece of the process of the bird meeting the needs of the day. It's sort of the, the bare minimum unfolding of things. It's not additive. Um, what one of the things he writes, uh, and this is this will, this will, maybe be more or maybe less clear. He writes in the evening, when silence rests over the land and you hear the distant bellowing from the meadow or from the farmer's house in the distance you hear the familiar voice of the dog, you cannot say that this bellowing or this voice disturbs the silence. No, this belongs to the silence, is in a mysterious and then in turn silent harmony with the silence. This increases it. So, you can sort of get a picture of what he's getting at uh, when he thinks about silence. Um, and I think as far as applying it to our own lives, yes, I think there is a component of it which is, which is 
the silencing of speech. And I think we'll get to that in a moment. But he says, in this silence, it has this sort of character of waiting. Um, he writes, only by being silent does one find the moment. So the silence is a sort of expectant silence. Again, we're focused on not simply absence of speech, but a sort of patient readiness to listen. And so when he says that only in silence do we find the moment, the next question is, what is the moment? Um, and the moment I sort of think of as, very simply, the moment in which you hear God. <laughs> the moment in which, in which you find, in which God's will is clarified. Let's put it that way. Um, but it's easy when that moment comes to miss it by being too preoccupied with things. And so I think this silence, this is where it applies to speech, but it also applies to the sort of busyness of our lives, of finding ways to, to step back from that, because that contributes to this sense of, to this experience of noise, of confusion, um, when we're when we're spending all of our time in this sort of busy, active state, we don't have the space necessarily for inwardness. Um, he goes on to talk about how silence lessens suffering, and he says it lessens suffering, and he says it can't lessen suffering. So it, what you need to understand is, is um, he describes suffering as something that we experience, something that simply is. And so in one sense, it is, and we have to, to bear it, and it can't be lessened. But silence is what allows it to be as small as possible. Silence is what allows it to be nothing more than simply the suffering that it is. So he writes that the bird is silent and suffers. The bird is not exempt from suffering, but the silent bird exempts itself from what makes the suffering harder, the mistaken sympathy of others, from what prolongs the suffering, all the talk about the suffering, from what makes the suffering into what is worse than suffering, into the sin of impatience and sadness. I think this, this is um, a really critical piece of this essay, and I think it has some very helpful and very broad applications in terms of how we relate to others. Um, so I think 
for a lot of us, and he uses the example of the poet, um, but for a lot of us, as we suffer, we sort of have this instinctive response of allowing it to find expression. And a lot of times that expression is in something as simple as talk about suffering. Um, we have this tendency to, to want to verbalize things, to want to speak about things, to want to take all of the suffering that we're experiencing and shout it from a mountaintop. Um, and in Kierkegaard's view, all this does is makes it worse. And so he basically says that in order, like I said, to to have silence be, or to have suffering be nothing more than the suffering that it is, to have it take up as little space as possible, um, to cause as little pain as possible, is to bear it silently. And I think this is very difficult. I think this runs counter to a lot of our impulses that are either innate or learned. I can't and won't say, but yeah, this is a this is a challenge for us, and I think there is a great deal of truth in what he's saying. I can't say that I have historically and over the course of my life um, done well at bearing suffering silently. I do tend to, like a lot of other people, give it some sort of expression or another. Um, but I think it's a, it's a really profound and beautiful approach to it, to recognizing this is my burden this is the burden that's been placed upon me, and, and again, it bleeds into the sort of obedience, right? It is my duty to carry this through each day, to continue with it, and, and no more nor less than that. We, we carry it, we acknowledge it, it's with us, we experience it, we all suffer. We all suffer. and. I think a characteristic that I've noticed about myself, despite being, I guess you, I could say I'm introverted, um, I have this feeling when I'm speaking with people of wanting to be known, wanting to be seen, wanting to be understood. And there's this sense that, that there's some, you know, validation that comes from being recognized by others, being understood by others. And how simple and profound to say, oh, I can let go of that. What if I didn't place such an importance on that? What if I didn't worry that someone is not aware of my suffering?
of how, how great and how important my suffering has been. What if we can let go of that? And I think too, it applies, it applies to bearing our own suffering, but I think it also is relevant as we're thinking about how to walk with others in their suffering. If we are around people, as we always are, who we know are suffering, either because we can observe it or because it's been expressed to us literally, I think, at least for me, and it could be simply my own self-centeredness, maybe other people don't experience this to the same degree, but I find it very difficult to talk about the suffering of others without in some way centering myself, um, trying to, even if I, I'm giving advice, right, it's based on my own experience, my own ideals, and so on and so forth, I'm so wrapped up in everything that I say. and. There's not an easy way to extricate yourself from that. But what if in silence I refused to insert myself? What if I could simply acknowledge someone else, simply listen to someone else, be with them and not offer more than silence. For me, it always feels inadequate. If someone comes to me and says that they are suffering something, I have a, an urge to say the right thing, to find what the right thing might be and to express it. And what if, what if, we, what if I were to let go of that and simply just be with others. Just recognize, just listen, just be present. Now, this is a somewhat different idea than talking about like being silent before God, but I think similar sort of principles apply, and I think it can be a very helpful way of, of being with others and of really being able to see others without just seeing the relation, without just seeing how, without just seeing their connectedness to myself, removing myself entirely and, and actually being, having that sort of union with another person. Okay, let's continue. Um, he describes silent as respect for God, says that in silence you are, quote, aware that you are before God. Again, this maybe goes back to describing the experience of being in the mountains, of being in a silent landscape, and the way that I sort of see it and hear it and experience it as being like I, 
I want to use the word precognitive. Like, like it, it's a perception that is prior to all perception. And I think this is sort of what I'm getting at, that I have really a terrible vocabulary for, a completely inadequate means to describe it. But, but it's this awareness of being before God in that silent space, in that, in that immense space, a recognition that I am before God. Again, in the noise of our lives, in the busyness of our lives, it is easy to forget. And I think it takes for some of us, and I include myself in this category, at least a lot of the time, it takes something grand, it takes something huge, it takes, you know, a beautiful mountain, mountain vista to have that awareness. But the more we are silent, the, the more we cultivate that awareness and the more we can experience it in, in smaller ways, right? I don't need to climb a mountain to become aware that I'm in the presence of God. I can have that experience in the tiny room that I live in. You know, I can have that experience walking down the street. I can have that experience in a lot of different ways. But sitting in my room, it doesn't have the same <laughs> impressiveness. And that is a sort of testament to the inadequacy of my own sensitivity to um, to God and and my own inability a lot of the times to listen because I am too wrapped up in things I am too busy I have too much noise um, and then I'm gonna read this is near the end, and it's a very it's a very beautiful passage. Even if what you want in the world would be the most astounding feat, you are to acknowledge the lily and the bird as your teachers, and before God you are not to become more important to yourself than the lily and the bird. And even if the whole world were not large enough to hold your plans when you unfold them, you are to learn from the lily and the bird as teachers to be able before God simply to fold up all your plans into less space than a period and with less noise than the most negligible trifle in silence. And if what you suffered in the world were as agonizing as anything ever experienced, you are to acknowledge the lily and the bird as your teachers and not become more important to yourself than the lily and the bird are to themselves in their minor cares. I find that just incredibly beautiful and I think it captures so well what he's getting at. And it also opens it up into all these other sorts of ideas that that he'll get into later um, it's 
the whole set of three discourses is, is brief, so there's always more to talk about than what he is putting on the page. But but this kind of opens into the the obedience, right? Because he's talking here about humility. Um, so the poet, in not being silent, makes himself more important, exaggerates his own importance, whereas we are to do the opposite and not become so important to ourselves. And the words that he uses, he says that in silence, you are to, quote, forget your will. Those three words, forget your will, are so crucial and will continue to be crucial in the next discourse. Um, in silence, I hope this kind of elucidates why silence is the first step, right? We're returning to the beginning. We're stepping back from ourselves. We're stepping back from our concerns. We have our suffering, but we're not, we're not allowing ourselves to be entangled within it. And we're recognizing our own smallness before God. And this is, this is how we prepare to become obedient is first we have to in silence be prepared to receive God to hear God um, and to in the process forget our own self-will so the very last thing he talks about is he goes back to Matthew 633 seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and what he sort of focuses on here is the seek first God's kingdom. What does this first mean? Because to say seek first God's kingdom implies that something else comes next. So what would that be? Well, for Kierkegaard, nothing comes next. The way he describes it is that the gospel is... gently bringing us into our duty. It is not too harsh, um, perhaps because were it too harsh, it would be off-putting, right? So he gives, I think, a helpful analogy here to a child the child's mother puts dinner on the table and the child says what use is what use is it for you to give me so little food this will not be enough to satisfy me and as the gospel is gentle the mother here is gentle and says well how about you eat what is on your plate first and then we can go about finding you a little bit more. And of course, the child begins to eat and cannot even finish what is on the plate, let alone have any more. So the idea here is that if, if we're, we, we are sort of coaxed into seeking God's kingdom, thinking that 
Everything else comes after. Everything else comes on the other side. But as we begin the process of seeking God's kingdom, we are, we find ourselves so satisfied and so enriched by our seeking that that becomes the only thing, right? It's not something that we complete. It's not something that we move on from. There's nothing that comes after. It is all seeking God's kingdom. And so when we're told, seek first God's kingdom, it's a gentle way of moving us in that direction. But everything that we are to do in obedience is a part of this experience of seeking God's kingdom. A lot of that, again, it, it leads very nicely into the next discourse, which we will discuss next time on obedience. Um, I hope this has been of some value. It's been useful to me to sort of explore this discourse and some of my thoughts around it. I think it's certainly very true that we tend to undervalue silence and that we tend to overestimate the and exaggerate the importance of ourselves and our sufferings. And I think as I move forward in my relationship with God and in my relationships with the people around me, this quality of silence is something that I will work hard to cultivate to a greater degree because I think it is a very powerful way of becoming closer with God and of living more meaningfully among other people and of seeing and loving our neighbor with greater clarity and empathy. So that is all that comes to mind right now. I will end it there. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next time.